This afternoon we're going to begin in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and I want us to notice verses 14 through 18. 2 Corinthians 5, beginning with verse 14. For the love of Christ constraineth us, or compels us, because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead. And that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. Wherefore, henceforth, know we no man under the flesh, after the flesh. Yea, though we have known Christ after the flesh, yet now henceforth know we him no more. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature." Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation. I think if we did a uh, study of the Bible, and we tried to come up with a concept or a thought, that we could, in a, in a short statement, uh, recite to someone explaining to them, that person or a group of people, exactly what is the the theme of the Bible. When I write a sermon, and at any given time I have several sermons always kind of in the production line, and what I try to do, the first thing I try to come up with, I don't come up with a title till I'm finished, uh, you know, it, it, it's hard to uh, know anything about someone until after you meet them. And so I try to uh, complete or nearly complete the sermon before I come up with a title, but I always begin with a thesis statement. I try to have a single thesis statement so I can stay on track and I'm not running around all over the place, have a central theme so I can keep everything connected together. And so if we were thinking about uh, a central theme or a thesis statement concerning what the Bible is about, there would be a whole lot of uh, of, uh, different ideas or opportunities that we could choose from. Well, I think the most basic of those would be the fact that the gospel of Christ represents to the world that God loves them. Now, then we can get into the fact of how God demonstrated that love. And we go over to John 3.16, and I think John, or Christ rather, John recorded the words of Christ, of His saying, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth on Him should not perish but have everlasting life. We were speaking this morning in Bible class. One aspect of the class is, was that it is easy to love someone who loves you back. Even the publicans were able to do that. But it is infinitely more difficult to love someone who is unlovable. But but Paul declared this, Romans 5 verse 8, but God commendeth or demonstrated or gave His love toward us in that while we were good folks and we were lovable. That's not what he said, was it? 
while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. Is there a worse uh, adjective that a person could have hung on them than that they are ungodly? I don't think so. I think that's about the worst statement that can be made about anyone, the fact that they're ungodly. But even though the world was ungodly and everyone in it, Christ died for us. And it is that love that makes possible the message of salvation. I think sometimes it is very hard to understand the sacrifice that Jesus gave on our behalf. After all, we are so far removed from the actual event that we allow the things of this life and our busy schedules and things like that to kind of make us overlook that or maybe not think about it. And I don't think that's intentional at all. I just think that as life goes on, you know, it's been about 2,000 years since Christ was treated the way He was treated. No one has ever been treated that way since or before. And it's not a regular happening for us to see people treated that way, particularly in our nation, but it's even becoming more rare and rare around the world except for uh, communist nations like North Korea or China or some of the Middle Eastern Islamic nations. They'll treat people in that way. But we get so caught up that we kind of overlook that sometimes. But we have to remember... God loved His only begotten Son in the same way that we love our children. In the exact same way. So maybe for us to better understand exactly what that love was, we ought to consider it from that perspective, right? John made a statement. He said, In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. John 1, beginning with verse 1. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. On down to verse 14, And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and mercy. Can you imagine? It's hard to, but let's try to imagine the difficulty the Father must have experienced in looking down upon what was happening to His Son particularly those last moments of his life when he was beaten and scourged and carried off to be crucified on the cross and and having the spear thrust into his side after having the nails in his hands and his feet. Can you imagine the thought of that? How difficult. But that's where his great love came in, wasn't it? That's where the great love from the Father came in. I want us to consider for a few moments how... He must have felt as if it were our own children. Now imagine how he felt after having watched the Son of Promise, the Messiah, having been brutalized and mistreated, and then hearing the words, Crucify Him, Crucify Him, Luke 23, 21. You know what Christ's response to that was? His response to that was, I will never leave you nor forsake you, Hebrews 13, 5. Now we see the connection to John 3, 16. We see the great love of the Father, that He loved the whole world so much that He willingly gave that only begotten Son, the only one of its kind, a very unique uh, Son, 
and that very son willingly coming and giving up his own life to be murdered just so we could have salvation. He made a promise and he kept it. That's what's so wonderful. How should that affect us? How should that affect me as I look at that and I boil down the Bible to one thought that God loves us so much that He gave His prized possession that we might be saved. So what's my response? The title of the sermon this afternoon is True Love. And we're going to look at the aspect of true love in the sense of what should God's true love cause me to do. That's kind of the thesis that I put into this sermon. Shouldn't that gift of love elicit from me a love so strong that I would be willing to do anything to make sure that I am pleasing to Him and that I show my appreciation for exactly what He's done? A true love like God's should make us first want to leave sin. It ought to make us want to put behind us all of the things in this life that go contrary to what God would want us to do. And in order to be able to do that, through His very actions, God has provided for us the motivation that ought to cause us to want to do that. Doesn't it seem natural, though, that most people have a desire to take care of themselves? We want to live for ourselves, and we want to do things for ourselves. And you look around the world, and you even see parents that want to do those things. And, it, and it's hard for most of us to, to look at that and understand that, how, how someone could put themselves first before their children, but that happens in some places. There are a lot of families, even in our own nation, who will put themselves and their desires ahead of what their children need. I don't understand. It's kind of hard for me to, to process, but the world says, look, you better look out for yourself because no one else is going to. Well, that's not true with God, is it? The Holy Spirit said this in Corinthians 5.15, and that He died for all, of course speaking of Christ, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto Him who died for them and rose again. We ought to live for Him. That great act of love on our behalf that gave us the opportunity to be in the heavenly realm eternally ought to make us want to live for Him. That's the motivation he took our place. He died in our stead. And that gave us the opportunity to be able to have eternal life. He paid a debt that we could not pay. We understand what sin brings about, Romans 6.23. We understand that in Paul's statement there that eternal life is a gift from God, but the wages of sin is death. See, you earn wages. You deserve death when you sin. But God's great love and remember, we're boiling down to one thought, exactly what the whole of the Bible is about, that God loved us and gave us an opportunity to be saved. We've been given the proper motivation. But how much good does motivation do one unless it moves you to go in the right direction? Someone can be motivated. You can be motivated in a number of ways, can't you? But unless that motivation moves you to do what you ought to do, it does no good. 
Jesus set the bar for discipleship. He set the bar of what it costs. He wasn't uh, sneaking. He wasn't trying to uh, sneak up on us and, and not tell us what the price of discipleship was. He made the statement, Matthew 16, 24. He said, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now that goes directly in opposition to what most of the world want to do. Take care of yourself because no one else will. Well, Jesus said, deny self. Follow me. Don't give in to the, to the motivations of the world. Give in to the motivations of God. Paul described how he was moved to leave sin. Notice what he said Philippians 3, beginning with verse 7. But what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Yea, doubtless, and I count things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ. He gave up his prominent position in the Jewish religion. He gave up his wealth. He gave up the love of his fellow man, he gave up everything so he might gain Christ. What a motivation and what a movement toward that which he ought to do. The motivation moved him to leave sin behind. True love for God and from God should cause all of us to want to leave sin behind, but the only way we can do that is if we learn what he expects from us our second point. Jesus gave his life so we could hear the message. Now think about that for just a moment. The message gives us eternal life if we will accept it. But he gave his life for the whole world and a vast majority of the world will not even obey that message. He died just simply so they could hear it and have an opportunity to reject it or to accept it. All people must come to an understanding of how important Jesus' message truly is. He boiled it down kind of to this, Matthew 28, 18. All power is given unto me, or authority, in heaven and in earth. And because of that, we ought to make sure we hear what he says. There are so many folks in the world today that want to deliver a message that they think is appropriate, when we ought to be listening to what the Bible says. After all, it was Paul who said so. Then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. We can't get faith from hearing what Rick Owen's personal opinion is on something. We have to gain our faith from hearing what God has to say about it. Now, if that message is repeated and it's repeated correctly, well, we ought to listen to it, Right? But if someone teaches something that is not in accordance to Christ's teaching, we ought to get away from that. And that's what Paul talked to the Galatians about. Galatians 1, verses 6 through 9. We won't read that, but you, ought, you need to go read it. Paul made a statement. He said, I marvel. I am astonished. That's what he meant. I am astonished that you are so soon removed from the gospel they taught them. He said to another gospel. But he added, which is not the gospel. He was astonished. They allowed their motivation 
to be lost. They allowed a foreign motivation to move them toward error. And they did not learn what God wanted them to do. To guard against deception, one has to be knowledgeable in the Word of God. We have to know what the New Testament says. If we do not understand what the book says, we can't guard against false teaching. Christ commanded, Matthew eleven twenty-eight 28 through 29, He said, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. Let's go to Him. Let's take His yoke. Let's listen to His message, right? Now here is something that our two points have in common. We must heed what we hear, right? Motivation without movement is as bad as hearing without heeding. We have to heed what we hear. The whole purpose of the message is to bring about submission to the Word of God, to God Himself and to the Son. Jesus asked those in His time. Luke 6, beginning with verse 46, And why call ye me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? Whosoever cometh to me and heareth not, and heareth my sayings and doeth them, I will show you to whom he is like. He is like a man which built an house and digged deep and laid the foundation on a rock. And when the flood came, the storm, the stream beat vehemently, vehemently upon the house and could not shake it. For it was founded upon a rock. But he that heareth and doeth not is like a man that without a foundation built an house upon the earth against which the stream did beat vehemently and immediately it fell and the ruin of that house was great. If we listen to the words of Jesus, we'll build our house on a foundation. And it's a strong foundation. Now, we're not used to uh, illustrations like this, but they would have been very familiar with with the illustration here. And what he's talking about is a, is what we would call a wet weather stream. They call them a wadi. A wet, when it, uh, in the dry season, it's, it's dry. It's, you can build a hut on it if you want to. It's not going anywhere. You don't have to have a great foundation. But when the wet season comes and that wadi bed fills up and the water comes rushing down, it'll push that house to the side. Unless you've dug down deep, you hit the rock, you built your house on a great foundation and then the water just simply goes around it. And that's the foundation upon which we have to build our spiritual lives. Christ Jesus. Just as He was obedient to the death of the cross, Philippians 2.8, true love for God ought to cause every one of us to submit to Him. Submission to God is submission all things that he teaches, whether it's the plan of salvation, it's the proper way of worship, it's uh, anything that has to do with life and godliness. He's given us all things that pertain unto life and godliness. How we interact with those outside the church on a, on a daily basis. If we work for a company and we're around people who are not Christians, or we're around people who are Christians, how do we behave? Do they recognize us as Christians? if it was simply based on our behavior. See, we have to submit to all of those things. Now, we have to keep in mind also, we have to be able to show others the same message that we learn. We ought to give them the same opportunity that someone gave us in the past. And if we don't do that, 
we haven't submitted to God. True love for God should motivate us to leave the world of sin. It should create a desire for us to hear, but also to heed. And finally, it should make the hearer have a desire to live as a Christian in this world. And that we ought to look forward to Christ's return. How do we do that? How do we, how do we live as a Christian? How do we put ourselves in position to look forward to His return? Well, first of all, we, we have to commit ourselves, right? One has to commit himself to Christ above all other things. That's difficult sometimes. But that's what God expects. It's not too difficult or He wouldn't require it. A commitment is necessary because a whole lot of people in the world have initially obeyed the gospel and have simply returned to the world. You see, they didn't count the cost. They didn't make the commitment that was necessary to maintain that salvation. In fact, we read about a man by the name of Demas. Demas was a Christian. At one time, he was a faithful follower of God and he was a faithful servant of Paul. He was loyal to him. And we read about him in only three places. Paul commends him in one, and I don't have all of the references, but Paul commends him as a great worker in one. Then he simply mentions him by name in another one. And finally, in 2 Timothy 4 verse 10, he says, For Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world, having loved living in this world, and having the nice things of this world, and if you're going to be a faithful Christian, particularly in the time that Paul was living, you would not have those things and be a Christian. And so he prized that above being faithful. Now here's the thing about Demas. How do we know Demas didn't count the cost? How do we know Demas did not commit himself? God didn't sneak up on Demas. Paul didn't sneak up on Demas. They told him and they taught him exactly what he needed to do to be faithful. Jesus warned, Matthew 10, 22, And ye shall be hated of all men for my name's sake, but he that endureth to the end shall be saved. To live for God takes commitment. And a very important part of commitment is each Christian being willing to communicate that to others. How many times is it recorded how when a person learned of Jesus, met Jesus, or was healed by Jesus, that they could hardly wait to tell someone else about it? Almost every time, right? You recall John 1, beginning with verse 41, how Andrew found Jesus. He found the Messiah, and the first thing he did was go get his brother Peter. He went and got Peter, and he said, I found the Messiah. Come back, let me take you to him. I'd do that, wouldn't you? Well, sure. What would we do if, if we went somewhere and we found an individual and he said, Look, I've been curing people of cancer for 10 years, but no one has come and told anyone about it. What would we do? Well, we'd put an ad in the paper, wouldn't we? We'd put an ad in the paper. Hey, meet me up here. I'm going to take you over to this fellow who can cure cancer. What about if someone had a cure for uh, HIV or uh, fill in the blank what would we do would we reach out to those people around us 
Why well, be on the phone constantly? Do I do that? Because I have the cure for a lost soul. Maybe that's something for us all to think about. When the great persecution against the church began in the first century, all those faithful Christians departed Jerusalem. And one of the greatest statements that I think in recognizing someone's faith is found in Acts 8, verse 4. And they went everywhere preaching the word. They had to leave Jerusalem because they were going to be killed. They didn't go high. They didn't hold it back. They went everywhere preaching the word. Jesus left our marching orders. He said, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be damned. Mark 16, 15 and 16. In that same letter where we began this afternoon, Paul said, We having the same spirit of faith according as it is written, I believed, and therefore have I spoken. We also believe, and therefore speak. 2 Corinthians four thirteen. Are we going to allow our true love for God to bring us to obedience to Him? Well, we ought to. We ought to do that. And we're not talking about obedience to generational traditions, and we all understand that, but a lot of people don't. But we need to be able to teach that. There are a lot of denominations in the world that teach a whole lot of different doctrines in the world. We have to go to the source. My dad used to tell me all the time, go to the head of the stream. Go to the head of the stream. It took me a long time to figure that out. Where's the water the clearest? Where is it the purest? At the head of the stream, right? By the time it filters down and it gets to wherever it's going, you might not even be able to drink it. So we have to go to the head of the stream. We need to make sure that people understand about salvation, about our own salvation and about the salvation of others. One's loyalty must lie in Christ, no other. We have to stand firm on the Bible. We have to teach what it teaches. And we have to live the way it asks us to live. If you need to answer the Lord's invitation tonight, if you need to come back to Him in repentance and prayer, do that as we stand and as we sing.